to myself marvels of modern technology. I've never been rigged up like this before in all my 87 years. <laughs> However, you have to bear with me. Uh, perhaps we'll just bow our head and thank the Lord. Our loving Father, we bow humbly in thy presence. And with reverence, Lord, we would lift our hearts to thee in thanksgiving. And we would say, thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me thy great salvation, so rich, so free. And Father, to think, and we ask ourselves the question, how is it that some have had the privilege of hearing the gospel many times when countless multitudes have never heard it for the first time? Lord, we just pray then for those in our gathering that may be faithless, that they may be brought to saving faith in Jesus Christ, that they may be mindful of the word of God. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? There's danger and delay. Father, if the Spirit of God would cease to strive with them, if, Father, death should overtake them, if the Lord should return, they will experience a lost eternity. Father, would pray for this Holy Spirit of God that will touch their hearts and show them that their greatest need is a Savior, and He is the one and only Savior of the world and of sinners like us and like them, the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless us, our Father. May what we say be for thy glory, may be for the edification of thy people. We will commit ourselves to thee in our Savior's name. Amen. As I stand here, I can, can only acknowledge that I am just an unworthy recipient of the mercy and the grace of God. I feel like Jacob. Oh Lord, why hast thou shown unto me all thy truth, the least of all thy truth, the least of all thy mercy which thou hast shown unto me? And there's so much to say in so little time. There are time restraints, I know. I may not even look at this. So, um, I'm just going to start off by just bringing something to your attention, a little, little, it's not altogether a poem, but perhaps it is, but it expresses the truth of the Bible pertaining to salvation indeed. And uh, this, the above of what I'm going to read, was taken from an old Methodist preacher's Bible way back in 19. 54, and I was boarding at that time with his widow, and she was a very godly Christian woman. After I had been put out of the home, I had been expelled out of the home for my faith in Jesus Christ. I was put out on the street, really. So I came across this, as I say, I was boarding her with her for a short period of time. I had three other boarding houses as well after that. And the poem is called Salvation. It says, God thought it. Jesus bought it. The Bible taught it. Fate brought it. The mind caught it. The soul sought it. The Holy Spirit wrought it.
The devil fought it, but I've got it. Hallelujah. Praise God. Not unto me, O Lord, not unto me, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and thy truth's sake. You know, the wonder of this book, it's our textbook. It's the basis of our belief. We have nothing else. Nothing else. It's a remarkable thing that you can lay aside thousands, millions, countless, billions of books in the libraries of the world and take one in your hand and say, this is the word of God. The others are not. That's the wonder of the gospel. It's great good news. It's good news because it's true. And it's truth. It's destined to outlive the stars. Why? Because the Lord Jesus, whose ultimate truth, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. And he said, my words shall, not, shall never pass away. The grass withereth, the flower faded, but the word of our God shall stand forever, forever, O Lord. Thy word is settled in heaven. What said the scripture? Not what I think. And I was just thinking privately as I came up here, I thought to myself, if I'm going to give a little witness to the test, saving te to the testament of the saving grace of God, a witness is expected to speak the truth. Not what he thinks, not what he imagines, not what he conjures up in his head. What, what does the Bible say? What said the scripture? Every story has a beginning. Now I'm going to try and begin. With God's help and finish within the allotted time. My story goes back to the city of St. John's, Newfoundland. 87 years ago, I was born to the flesh, a physical birth, into the kingdom of man. It was involuntary. I had nothing to do with it. It was of brief duration. Life at best is very brief, like the falling off a leaf, like the binding of a sheaf, being time. The longest day is short. And the scripture says the days of our years are threescore and ten years. Or if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, Yet is there strength, labor, and sorrow. For it is soon cut off, and we fly away. What an apt description. How brief is our life. How vast is eternity. Eternity where? I was born on September the 2nd, 1934. I enter the kingdom of man. Six... On October the 11th, 1953, 67 years ago, I was born of the Spirit. A heavenly birth. I entered the kingdom of God by a birth. And 
that will never end. It's for eternity. Now I belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to me. Not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. The duration is forever. Forever with the Lord. What a blessed inheritance awaits everyone that places faith in Jesus Christ. That was voluntary. I had to make a decision. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus, the Son of God? And 67 years ago, the language of my heart was, Jesus, I will trust thee. Trust thee with my soul, guilty, lost and helpless. Thou and thou alone can make me whole. I came to seek and save the lost. I did not come to seek the righteous, but to bring sinners to repentance. And I came to Christ. And that was a glorious moment in my experience. And I will never forget it as long as I breathe. The next day was Thanksgiving Day, October the 12th. And I've been thankful every day since. I was brought up in a large family. I was the oldest of ten. My father was a buttermaker. He had little education like myself. He was a very kind man, very personable, patient. <laughs> he had a long fuse, but when he exploded, <laughs> there could be a lot of damage, you know. He was, he, had, he was a religious man. I'm thankful for that. I didn't say he was a Christian. I said he was a religious man. Your reliance is your religion. He wasn't relying on Christ. And consequently, we were taken to church every Sunday. We never owned a car. We never had much money. He never had a car until after his retirement. We had to walk three miles from the country into the city down near the harbor. Every, near, and the church over there was a large Protestant denomination, I won't mention the name. And faithfully, we would walk those three miles out of the country, down to the Water Street, down to the, the harbor, near the harbor. And we would retrace our steps all the way home. And that Sunday dinner tasted really good. And off to Sunday school. The shoes had to be polished every Saturday night. And you dare not go out and engage in any sports on the Lord's Day. That was strictly forbidden. But mom would say, no, your father's going for a walk now. So if you want to go down in the marsh, down in the mesh, down in the bog, and have a little skate, secondhand skates, you can go down to the bog, go down in the marsh. Or if you want to go down and play baseball, you know, whatever. <laughs> I never owned a glove, whatever. But only be behind dad's back. We dare not do it. So he was totally unawares of that. So I grew up, went to Sunday school. Even as a boy, I had an appreciation for the handiwork of God. I, I could see the hand of God in creation. As a little boy, I remember once walking along a country road, and there was a fence there, and there was just a mass of colored flowers or little crocuses. And I reached in, and I picked one, and I brought it home. 
And I could see God's hand in the glory of the setting sun. And I could see God's hand in the changing seasons. And I could see God's hand in the signs of the land, especially when I was in the North Country and the phenomena of the Northern Lights, just an explosion of color as they swept across the sky. I could see God's hand in the migrations of the birds, countless thousands of waterfalls, ducks and geese, so many that it seemed as though the sky was darkening when I was in the North Country for two years. To get back to my story, in Sunday school, I, I sang courses. No doubt I sang, Jesus loves me, this I know. And little drops of water, little grains of sand make the mighty ocean and the pleasant land. So the little moments, humble though they be, might make the mighty ages of eternity. I, for years, I didn't even know. I, I never heard that word mentioned. And with respect to my soloist, I was thinking, a sole is something that you hit on your shoes, on your footwear. There was no perception. There was no understanding of spiritual truth. There was no prayer in the home. There was no thanksgiving for food. There was no spiritual discussions. I never heard the word salvation. I never knew the value of my precious soul. My father Sunday afternoon would have been playing the accordion. I can't read a note. Give me the first bar and I have it. I know what's coming next. He would play the mandolin. He could play the piano. He had a great ear for music. Not noise, music. There's a vast difference between the two. <laughs> Most people can't differentiate, you know. But today's modern so-called music's chief quality is noise. There's nothing soothing or comforting or inspirational about it. It doesn't direct your thoughts Godward. Anyway, so I would go to Sunday school to give me a little verse to learn, but salvation was never mentioned. Never knew I was a lost soul. Never knew. I grew up, went to church regularly, sang hymns, loved to sing hymns. And I always felt inspired to sing hymns, like God was near. Yet God, God, my creator, was way out there, a remote being. There was no connection. There was no relationship. And yet I could see the hand of God in nature, for the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firm showed his handiwork. I could see the hand of God in creation, but I didn't know creator's God. I remember in school I wrote an essay. I really climbed high on that academic letter. I finished school nice in grade 10. I'll tell you about that. Well, in the essay, I, 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 I titled it Springtime, and the teacher gave me 95%. <laughs> and uh, I, in, in the essay, I talked about spring being the, the season of new birth, regeneration, when all nature bursts forth new life. You see, heaven is the hand of God everywhere. His power, his wisdom, his beauty, his diversity, the wonder of it all. But there was no spiritual understanding, new birth, regeneration, didn't know a thing about it. Krishna name only. I was taught that when I was a baby that I was baptized, so-called. A few drops of cold water, which won't wash your face clean. A baby, I couldn't think one intelligent thought. 
I didn't even know I was in the world. In some miraculous transformation, transformation, I was actually brought into the kingdom of God. I was brought into relation, relation with, God, with God. My guilt was put away. My sins were put away. I had forgiven. Wherein I was made a child of God and an inheritor of the kingdom of heaven. By virtue of what? A right of the church. I say it kindly. Not to dear people. The ecclesiastical system so unscriptural. Baptismal regeneration. A misapplication of John 3, where the Lord Jesus said, except a man is born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Except the man is born of water and of the spirit, he shall not see the kingdom of God. Mistrans- and they take that water to mean literally just cold water, water, a few springs of drop water on your empty head. So unscriptural. It's a perversion of the scriptures. This is untrue. It's damning the soul to countless millions. No, my friend, we need a new birth. We need a new life. We need a Savior. And Jesus Christ is that Savior. The living Christ ascended and glorified on high. I remember on one occasion... When I was in the North Country, I was so impressed in the autumn time with the flaming woodlands, you know, just a blaze of color. And I wrote my little diary, God, the master artist, is at work in his creation. I, I don't know about the rest. My mother destroyed my, my diary after I trusted Christ as my Savior. And you think at the hands on that I cherished, they just tore it up and destroyed it. When I was 16 years old, I saw an ad in the newspaper wanted, they wanted personnel or people to work at their fur trading post in northern Manitoba, or yeah, you went out throughout the entire country of Canada. So uh, I went down, I applied, and I got this position. I was going to work with the Hudson Bay Company in the province of Manitoba way back in 1951. It was a two-year contract. If I broke it, I had, would have to pay my way home, all the way back home to St. John's, and I didn't have any money. So it was a two-year contract, and I was in the far north, fly in, fly out. Seaplane, float plane, ski plane in the winter, very isolated, very remote. 700 Cree Indians there. I was the only Christian boy there. Just a sprinkling, just a few white people. And that was my introduction to the North Country. And that was my introduction to really the book of nature, so to speak. Like some has said, all nature bears the stamp and the signature of the divine. I could see God's hand everywhere in nature. But as I said, I didn't know nature's God. There was no Christian contact there except for two nurses at a little nursing station there. And uh, they were men like girls. They knew the Lord, and they had a love for souls. And they were praying for me, but I didn't know. They gave me gospel literature, but I couldn't quote one verse of Scripture. One that I do remember from my catechism, which is, gives an account of the church's doctrine and teaching, was that, 
the chief end, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to, pray, and to enjoy him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's beautiful. And that's, that's the privilege of the Christian, the child of God. We have that connection, that relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, through the Lord Jesus Christ. So I was there for one year. My manager was only a young man. I was just barely, just 16. And the next year, I was moved to another post halfway, midway down on Lake Winnipeg, which is a, a large ocean. And uh, there was some Christian contact there. There was a priest there. His name is Father Paris. No doubt his intentions were good, but his teachings were wrong. He gave me prayer beads, and he gave me a book on Peter. Very lightful man, very warm, very outgoing, you know. And I was impressionable, you know. And I didn't see any difference between so-called man-made religion and Christianity. Christianity is Christ and Christ alone. Christianity cannot exist without Christ. And Christianity cannot live, be lived apart from Christ. Christianity is Christ. Gee, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And he was sincere. I don't know if I got into the book of Peter. Poor failing Peter. He had some remarkably good qualities, but... Not too long after that, there was a Pentecost minister there. He was one quarter Indian, Sioux Indian. And he was married to a white lady. They had two pretty little girls. They were as poor as church mice. And he was doing missionary work along the banks of the river off of Lake Winnipeg. And uh, he came into the store, Hudson Bay Post. I was the clerk there. And uh, we got talking and we, we, we got acquainted and... He said, Bob, he said, uh, can I have those prayer beads, he said, and, and that, uh, you know, the book on Peter? And he put another volume in my hand. Guess what it was entitled? Fox's Book of Murders. Well, I, I didn't have no real spiritual perception at that time or understanding of how these dear people laid down their life for the cause of Christ and how they were persecuted unto death and how that they were burned to death in their Bible in their hand by this large religious body, the largest in the world. So what more can I say? It's been enlightening, but the Spirit of God didn't dwell in me. My mind wasn't illuminated, and I didn't appreciate it fully, fully as I do now, how these people suffered at that that cruel uh, denomination that's responsible for the death of no less than 50 million saints. And that's been researched by a, a very renowned Christian scholar. Not pagan Rome, but uh, papal Rome, I have to say. And I say it kindly. Not the dear people. That corrupt religious system that hates the open Bible. They hate it. Because that's where the truth resides right there, right there. So there was a lady there, and her name was Miss Andy Nedry. She wasn't married. She had been there for 30 years, a Christian missionary. And I'd go into the home there, and she would ask me to sing, because I had a little voice there then. <laughs> Sometimes I say, even a crow can make a noise, because I could sing tenor. It's long gone. Anyway, oh, yeah. 
We get around the piano, we'll sing like hymns, the way of the cross leads home. King of my life, I crown thee now. Now I sing, Jesus, keep me near the cross, near oppression's fountain, just as I am. And I would sing, um, I need thee every hour. But there was no, I was faithless. I was Christless. And yet I always would feel a, a, a sort of a warm feeling like I was religious. <laughs> Religious, I said. Not re- I didn't have redemption. I had religion. So, uh, dear soul, you pray for me, and he did. Godly woman. And after the Lord saved me, I uh, wrote her, and she said, you know, my prayers have been answered. Yeah. And then there was Mr. Leonard Simcoe, the Pentecost missionary, would go, and his wife would play the piano accordion. I'd, he'd be there, his wife would be there, and I'd be there. And all the Indians would be gathered around in the little huts along the banks of the river off of Lake Winnipeg. And um, most of the furniture was homemade, wooden crates, packing crates. And uh, I'd get, they'd get down to pray, and, and I, I would observe, and I'd be looking for my eyes because I still didn't know how to pray, and I don't know how to pray now as I ought. And uh, they would be singing praises on the Lord. But you know something? He never confronted me about my personal relationship to Jesus Christ. I sometimes think back. Doubtless he prayed for me. And uh, so I left there after two years and I wrote my diary. As a result of having lived in the North Country for two years, I'm finally coming home now. I haven't seen my parents for two years. I had no Christian influence back in Newfoundland, no Christian friends, uh, like I say, I was just uh, all strange to me. And I wrote my diary as a result of having spent two years in the North Country. My desire has been greatly enriched to live a Christian life. But Christ wasn't in my life. That summer, I better hurry. I walked along the country road on my way. I, di- I didn't renew my country. My mom said, you're gone for two years now. I used to send her home 90% of my salary, keep 10% myself. And I said, I don't want you to go back north, so I listened to my mom. I'm walking along a country road now in the month of August. As I lived outside the sea, I'm on my way to downtown St. John's by the harbor. I had a job there, a customer's clerk. And uh, this old green Pontiac came along, and uh, he stopped. Sometimes, as I reflect, I think I actually put my thumb up. I was thumbing a ride. So I got in. And uh, in, over the course of time, in the providential mercy of God and his kindness to me and to every sinner, uh, when the time came to get out, I couldn't get out. He had to get out of the car and go around and open the passenger door. The passenger door didn't work. The passenger door was, was, was malfunctioning. So he had a captive audience, so to speak. This happened for a number of occasions. I was either coming or going from work. And he was a carpenter, and he had loved souls. He was soul when he minded. He had a care for others, and he had wanted to share the gospel with others. And I got in the car, and then he would drive and park in front of my house, our little house out in the countryside. Now he would talk to me about my relationship to the Lord, and he would say, no, Bob, he said, are you good enough to go to heaven? I would say, no, I can't say I'm good enough to heaven, although I had a high moral code, you know. I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't swear, I don't know how to dance. Uh, I never commit sexual sin. I, I figured I had no claim upon a woman unless she was my wife. Little as I know, I was sexually naive. Didn't drink, didn't smoke, didn't swear. Very rarely would I be given to profanity. 
So I was thought of as self-righteous, you know? And, uh, of course, uh, reformation and regeneration are two vastly different things. I was trying to reform my life. And uh, what said, I said, I couldn't admit that I'm good enough to go to heaven. You know, humanly speaking, and when I compare myself with others, that's the folly of human comparison. It's always somebody better than you or worse than you. And I said, I can't say that. Well, he said, are you bad enough to go to hell? Well, I said, I don't think so. I said, I don't deserve hell. I don't think I'm that bad a sinner. You know, as to the nature of sin, as to the fact that all have sinned, but as to the degree of sin, there's a difference, and I didn't think that was that bad, really. Well, he said, you're not good enough to go to heaven. You're not bad enough to hell. Well, he said, where are you going to where are you go, spend your eternity? Where are you going? You're not good enough to go to heaven. You're not bad enough to go to hell. Where are you going? What's your ultimate goal destination? Two roads before you lie, and each a choice must make. One offered to the sky, one downward to the lake. Well, any chose the path of woe, each soul must answer, yes or no, you decide. Your direction, your decision decides your direction, and your direction decides your destiny. Whatever you decide, is either Christ in heaven or reject him and the consequences of your sin, which is death, eternal death. So I was in a real bind, a real dilemma. I said, what can I do? What a predicament. He said, Bob, he said, I'm sure being in heaven as though I was there 10,000 years. 10,000 years. I'm sure being in heaven as though I was there 10,000 years. Wow. I didn't have that conviction. I didn't have that assurance. I was speechless. I was astounded. How can anybody know? I don't know. I don't know where I'm going. I hope I will mirror heaven and abase my works, but salvation is not a gift. Rather, not a reward. Salvation is a gift. You can't earn it. Christ paid the way. Anyway, come out and hear the gospel preached. I went up first Sunday night. What stark simplicity walked in this building. Where's the robe clergy? No clergy here. Where's the choir? Where's the music? No organ. Where, where's the collection plate? One brother got up and preached his heart out like his life depended upon it. Preaching was marked by earnestness and sincerity and it was though he wanted something, he was, he was enjoying something so much so that he wanted to pass it on to others. When he's saved, you tell others a story. Don't go into a little secluded spot and soak in the gospel. Pass it on. And uh, I went and I sat down. No great, nothing that would impress the net the census. Just very simple little building. It was a converted beer hall. That's what it was. It was a gospel hall. And just maybe maybe 25 or so people there. And uh, one brother got up and preached, and I thought the meeting was over. Then another brother jumped up, and he began to preach just to reinforce what the first preacher said. Just local men. One was a carpenter. The other was a heavy-duty mechanic. Nobody, like myself, you know. Worked for 44 years in automotive. Life sentence. <laughs> Didn't have much education. All my brothers finished school. Teachers, lawyers, bankers, quality control technician. Uh, the assistant director was so sure none of them were saved. I was the only Christian in my family. I tried to, when I brought the light of the gospel to the home, it was instant, instant opposition. Light and darkness don't coexist. Bless my dear father's heart. No wonder he got upset because I was introducing something brand new to him. He never heard it. I never heard it. 
I never heard that Jesus loved me. I never heard it. I never knew the value of my soul. I did not know. God opened my eyes and opened my heart. I was almost 19 years of age. So he would get very angry with me. I had my best friend with me that night. The Lord saved him for, uh, four, weeks, four weeks after that. He came to know Christ. The second Sunday night, I had my brother and my best friend's brother. They were twins. One of them became a Jehovah's Witness. Well, thank God the Lord saved Hezekiah. That was his name. And then the third Sunday night I went, it was also strange. It was also foreign. I couldn't understand it. I was completely bewildered. By the fourth Sunday night, I was in deep, serious trouble, soul trouble. I realized I have to make a decision. This transaction is between me and God. I'm not right. I'm not fit for the kingdom of God. I need salvation. And I thought I had to be in that little building to get it. The fifth Sunday night came. I went and I knocked on my best friend's door. His mother came out. He had promised to go with me to the gospel the fifth Sunday night, to walk up to the little gospel hall. His mother said he's gone to his own church. Oh, I said, he promised to go with me tonight, but that didn't hinder me. At that point, my one objective was I had to get the matter settled. I've got to get right with God. I'm destined for hell. There's judgment for sin. Be sure your sins will find you out in your life, in your conscience or other, in your life and in eternity. The wage of sin is death. But the gift of God, blessed be his name, the gift of God for the eternal life through Jesus Christ is a gift. I want to accept the gift. I want to embrace Christ. So I went on up. I walked up that row into the little hall, sat down, the singing, the preaching was over. The singing is closing him. And the words are so beautiful. It's an invitational hymn. Come to Christ. There's life in him. There's forgiveness in him. There's blessing in him. And as he sang that closing hymn, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bids me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Suddenly, Suddenly, in that moment, that hymn, the words of that hymn impacted me. They had a profound and eternal effect upon my soul, just as I am, without one plea, but that your blood was shed for me, and that thou bids me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, just as I am. Thy love unknown has broken every barrier down, now to be thine, yea, thine alone, O Lord, my God, I come. And I came, came, and I trusted the Savior. And that was the greatest moment in my life. Never made another moment like it, ever, as long as I breathed. And then I walked out, and as I was about to exit the building, the two men that preached the gospel there that night, that heavy Judah mechanic and that carpenter, Mr. Barber, the man that first picked me up and, and talked to me about the gospel, I said, you see that verse of scripture over there? It says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. When God says shall, he doesn't mean perhaps. He doesn't mean maybe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. I said, I believe that. Just a matter of fact, I'm talking like I'm talking to you. I said, I believe that. My best friend, he wasn't with me that night. But on previous nights, he said, I don't like the preaching. It's too loud. 
But I could distinguish a difference in the church's so-called and what I had heard there in that little gospel hall. Because there was no conviction about eternal truth, there was no persecution. You know, live in your way you want. A few drops of water is going to do it. A few drops of water won't cut it. It's false. It's soul damning. And the soul damning sin is on belief. Mark it down. The Lord Jesus said, Go ye into all the world, preach the gospel to every preacher. He that believeth and is baptized. What comes first? Believe it. You have no capacity to, to believe. You're not able to believe when you're a baby in a cradle. You know nothing. But, but he that can we into all the world to preach the gospel to every creature, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And he that believeth not, what? Shall be judged, shall be condemned, shall be damned. Because of your rejection of Christ. So that night we went to a Christian's home. We had to sing as we normally did. Sing till you couldn't sing no more. Your throat was dry. You could hardly speak the next day. And I sang that night. And I was so thankful to sing the praises of God. To God be the glory. Unto you, Lord. Unto you be glory. For your mercy and your truth's sake. And then Mr. Kirk, Mr. Barber, the man that spoke to me initially about my soul, he said, would you like to tell somebody? I'm knocking on my friend's door now that very night, 10.30 the night. He had promised to go with me to the gospel service, but he broke his promise. He was, he was untruthful. And his mother said he's in bed. Well, I said, can you call him out? I want to speak to him for a few moments. So I stood in the kitchen. He came out in his pajamas, and I just said, I want to tell you, Hezzy, I said, Hezekiah, my best friend, he's still alive. I said, I got right with the Lord tonight. That's all I knew, and I don't know much more now. But I trusted Christ my Savior. And then I told my neighbors. And then I told my mother. Then I told my father. And understandably, he was upset. He was angry because they perceived me as a threat. You're the olds of nine. My little brother died when he was six years old. Light hair, blue eyes went to heaven. There was no cure for TB meningitis and inflammation of the brain. At six, the Lord took him into his presence. I'm a bad influence on the rest of the family. You have your own church. You've been baptized. You've been confirmed. Baptized. The folly of it all. Confirmed. Confirmed my unbelief. Loved to sing hymns. Loved to go to church. But couldn't understand the meaning of the words. I was singing truth, but it didn't impact my life. It didn't change my life. And the greatest proof of a Christian conversion is a changed life. That is the greatest proof of the reality of a Christian conversion. A changed life. There's got to be a change. Like we heard earlier, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Praise God. All things pass away. Now, I told my neighbors, and I got a very cool reception. I got my brother out to meet him one night to hear the gospel. My brother David, uh, six brothers. And when I opened the, the front door of our little house that night, who was standing behind the door? My father. Bless his heart. He didn't know. He thought I was teaching error or maybe associated with the cult. I didn't know anything until he just asked me one question. Was he with you tonight, pointing at my brother David? I said, yes, Dad. I respect my dad. He's the authoritarian figure in the home, quiet as he was. 
I suggested I didn't know anything and it hit me so hard that my knees buckled. I had black eye and he's pounding away. He's sort of an amateur boxer. He's very strong. He won many medals for rowing. He was a champion oarsman. He won three consecutive championship races as an oarsman in the end where he got in St. John's. He struck me so hard that I thought he was going to kill me. My mom came out and she said to Dad, stop it, you're going to kill him. When I was trying to protect myself, I went to work the next day with a black eye, so I had a chance to t tell the reason why, you know, so it's a little opportunity to, tell, to give my testimony. And uh, another time I'd be out reading my Bible on a Sunday afternoon because I feared to go into the house. I just hoped that you would invite me over for a cup of tea for lunch. And I'd be sitting there in the front garden, our little home outside in the country there. And my father would come out and he would say, come in out of you, big fool, reading that book. Come in out of it. He would be angry with me. But I would keep reading the Bible. And uh, I could go on and on. But... And then my brother made a confession of faith and uh, he renounced that uh, about two weeks later, uh, three weeks, four weeks later. He said, he just, Balby said, I'm no longer associated with the Gospel Hall. But we weren't even baptized. We weren't even as believers, because as many as believe are baptized. Who are baptized? As many as believe are baptized. That's the only divine qualification for baptism. See, like, the, like Philip said to the, uh, to the Ethiopian, Here, here's water. What does hinder me from being baptized? And he said, yeah, we'll baptize. No, he said, if thou believest, I'll baptize you. So he said, uh, I'm no longer associated with Gospel Hall. We only, I only got him out to Sunday school. And I got him out to the, you know, the Gospel meeting. And uh, he renounced it all. And uh, that's the way it was. It was very hard, you know. And that was the aftermath of my salvation. And uh, oh, then they had gospel meetings uh, in, in the January 1954. Well, we had two really good, uh, good gospel preachers, very capable preachers. And I got my dad and my mom out, and I got Aunt Elsie out, and I got my brother Morris and my next brother, Brother David, out. That was their season of visitation, but they, they missed it. 32 years passed before anybody in my family was saved. My mother trusted Christ at 75, baptized and in fellowship till 90. Two, almost 92 years of, of age, short of one month. Had a strong testimony. She had a keen intellect, a nun's daughter. I said, the nun's daughter. But she trusted Christ. She has something that was worth living for. And that powerfully impacted the rest of the family. They always thought I was out in left field, so to speak. You know, now your mother is saved. You know? <laughs> Praise God. And uh, yeah, and uh, then I got to sit. My sister then trusted Christ. Uh, Five years later, my older sister and I have a brother saved up in New Brunswick and his wife, you know. So sadly, all that time elapsed, 32 years. And they did have an opportunity way back in 54, a few months after the Lord saved me, yet they, they rejected it, you know. And uh, just read something here. If you don't mind me reading something, I'm through now, just about... But there was so much criticism and ridicule in the home and verbal and physical abuse, you know. The time came for me to get baptized. I didn't mention this. And my father broke right down, all five foot 11. 
of them and about 185 pounds. And he said, had I known you were going to turn out like this, tears streamed down his face. He said, I would have taken you down to the harbor beach and drowned you, he said. You know, and I was just shivering in my shoes. May, the first month of May, 1954, we were having our open-air gospel service. And Dad said, if you go down there, when you come home, your things will be in the porch. You wouldn't meet a kinder man. But now, I'm turning my back on the church. And all that it represented to him. He said, you go down there, when you come home, your things will be on the doorstep. I went to the open-air meeting. First Sunday in May, on the upper level, it's the higher part of the sea, looking down upon the harbor. When I got home that evening, my things were all in the porch, packed up. I didn't have very much, but all my worldly belongings right there. We ought to obey God rather than man. I went to the open air gospel service. I was put out on the street. In the dark of the night, I walked in the country road, and... The Lord gave me a song in the night. You know what the song was? Anywhere with Jesus, I can safely go. Anywhere he leads me in this world below. And the course says, anywhere, anywhere. Fear I cannot know. Anywhere with Jesus, I can safely go. As I walked into the darkness of the night on that little country road, and I knocked on the Christian's door, and they took me in. I had three other boarding houses. And in the course of that time, I had many opportunities to speak for the little world for the Lord as he enabled me, as he gave me the grace to do so. Passing on is good news. It's great good news. And uh, I don't have much more to say. I don't want to detain anyone necessarily, but um, in the workplace where I work for 44 years, I only met four Christians, and, and they didn't stay there for a long period of time for various reasons, maybe just long hours and low wages. One day, the store manager called me off to his office, going to interview me. He said, Bobby said, how do you perceive your role here? How do you perceive your role here? Is it to evangelize, evangelize the staff? Is it to evangelize the staff? Because, no, I said, uh, Jim, I called him my name. I said, I don't... No, I said, I believe, I said, speaking as a Christian, I said, my first obligation is to do my job well, to the best of my ability. But I said, in the course of my work, in the course of my work, while I am working, if I have an opportunity to share a little word with my fellow workers, I will. I never left his office for a full half hour after that, and uh, he was very able, very pleasant, and he seemed to, except what I was saying, you know, which was good, you know. We used to have open-air gospel service. We would leave Sunday night, Sunday morning after the breaking of bread. And when we say we, maybe myself and three, three, or, three or four others, and we'd get in the car and we'd drive an hour and a half out of the city into the little outports outside the city, you know, around the bay, we used to call it. And we'd have three open-air gospel services wouldn't get back home until maybe about 11 o'clock that night. did that many times, you know. Not to promote myself, but I said, is this something that's the least I can do? When he has saved you, tell others a story. And we'd get on the open air, and they had an old loudspeaker on the old car, and we'd be all, you know, right down by the water, and we'd be... So that's enough about me. 
It's not about me. It's about him. So that's all I have to say. I hope the Lord will bless you, each one. And that's what I said. I trust is for the glory of God. And I trust that God's people would be edified. And I trust that those that know not Christ will make that decision. It's for eternity. Trust the Lord Jesus as your Savior. Amen.